So I think that's important to know. Many times in deals, I can ask just a simple question of, you know, is there collateral we can put in place so that we can just be assured that my investor doesn't lose all their money if this deal doesn't go well. And many times we'll get the answer yes. And if we didn't ask that question, then there wouldn't be any collateral in place for the investor. So anyone that's listening here is a private investor. I mean, that's one thing I would make sure that you always do is just ask, you know, is there some sort of collateral in place? How is that documented in a, you know, a secured promissory note or some sort of deed in lieu of trust or some sort of document that, that protects your bet? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. The show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Richard Wilson from the Family Office Club. And today we're learning about what family offices and high net worth investors are looking for today, what type of investments they're looking for, how they're thinking about inflation and risk and where to place their capital to best fit their goals. I also asked Richard a question that's really been honestly kind of bugging me about a particular strategy that's put out there frequently as supposedly being the key to becoming a high net worth investor or the tool that all high net worth investors are using in their strategy. And uh, we dig into it a little bit and it turns out eh, that might not actually be true for everybody out there. Richard gives us a great answer to that question. I've talked about that issue in particular on the show in the past. I think now we're getting some of that insight into the issue that I've really been looking for. So I really appreciate Richard sharing that info on the show with us as well. It's a great conversation. Richard's very knowledgeable in what the 100 to 100 million to 1 billion plus dollar net worth investors are looking for. Very excited to have him on the show to share that with us today. Great lessons. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on commercial, multifamily, and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And if you know anyone who could use a little more passive wealth in their lives, who wants to learn about real estate investing and doesn't know where to get started, share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. We're here to help everybody grow and grow as a real estate investor. Once again, our guest today is Richard Wilson from the Family Office Club and so many other businesses. He's got a lot going on. He tells us about it today. Without any further ado, here we go. Richard, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and what you do, can you tell us about who you are and what you're doing? Sure, Taylor. So uh, my name is Richard C. Wilson. I started the Family Office Club in 2007. It's an investor club. We have 22 full-time employees. We've hosted 185 live events, written 13 books. Uh, we've helped start about 200 plus family offices and help formalize or create them from the ground up. And really our investment community does several things. And we're really a community that has two sides of it. We have a thousand plus people that are raising capital or one thing or another, or working with investors. And then we have 3000 plus investors and they come to our 15 live events a year. We do four 1000 plus person 
events a year that have 50 to 150 speakers on stage. And then we do a dozen or so, a smaller investor and capital raising workshops of different types at the family office club. And we really just try to be helpful with thought leadership for people on both sides of the fence. We found that if we're really helpful to those who had a liquidity event, they're just about to, or helping them design their direct investment strategy, that then we can earn their business over time. And so just like you doing this podcast, when you give people value first, then you know, business goes better. So appreciate having me here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Happy to have you. And it's been a few years. I think it might've been 2018 when you last came on the show, but either way, the markets have changed drastically over the course of the last four years. And uh, I'd like to dig in uh, with you about what the high net worth and family office investors are looking for these days in the market. We're in uncertain times, but in the grand scheme of things, basically, all times are uncertain, at least in the short term. We never know what's going to happen right around the corner. But what are they looking at these days as far as investments? Sure. Well, there's uh, five or six different things I could think of. One is they're looking at more reduced pricing on real estate. You know, we just secured a $1.5 million property for a million dollars flat. We have seen prices on $10 million properties come down to six and seven million. Um, wow. Right now, the market's pretty soft and it's just going to get even softer, I think, through Q4 and Q1. But a lot of investors are looking for better real estate pricing. They're also looking for income investments and investments where they could get a nice moderate return, but their downside is really protected and it's not super high leverage. Uh, they're not trying to hit a home run, it's trying to hit doubles. Maybe a triple happens every now and then, but your downside is really protected. In general, we've found that in investors we work with like gross revenue royalty structured deals. So we'll structure a deal where an investor gets their money back off the top line revenue, maybe a multiple on their money. And then their equity either goes away or their equity is cut in half or their equity warrant goes down in value after we've gotten the certain threshold return. We've also seen interest in the areas of um, short-term rentals, Airbnbs, mobile home parks, self-storage. And there seems to be a never-ending interest in multifamily as well as always. And then the last thing is that we've found a big interest in investing into medical practices. So dental practices and different types of like dermatology or oncology clinics that have multiple locations typically. Those are of interest because when you have multiple medical locations and multiple doctors per location and seven figures of revenue per location, banks will lend money to you all day long because your failure rate and your default rate is very low. And you're very unlikely to go out of business even if you lost half of the doctors on the platform. Your revenue would go down and then you'd stabilized a bit and you're less likely to go out of business as many operating businesses can sometimes. So. Long answer, but those are the things that take up our time and that we're always trying to source, you know, for for our investors. Great. Okay. And last time you were on the show, uh, you taught us about bucket strategy that higher net worth investors use and the way they think about different risk pools in their investments and all those kinds of things. But I, I would note that in that discussion of what they're looking for these days, you didn't mention anything related to publicly traded securities, either stocks or bonds. Is that just not your focus or is it generally something that family offices are moving away from? Is there any particular reason that those things didn't come up? Yeah, a couple of reasons. One is in every state, there's 40,000 people that specialize in traditional wealth management and we don't want to compete against them. Uh, <laughs> thing, you know, most of our families, you know, they, they trust their wealth advisor or two or three to diversify them and get them like, some exposure. But they're not super passionate as entrepreneurs about reading, they're going to earnings calls and reading financial statements and trying to predict the stock market. Most of my clients, if you didn't make your money in commodities or stocks, you're not super passionate about that. They might love Tesla or Amazon or Costco and tell their wealth advisor to put some money in those, but 
they're not super hands-on in those in general. And then right now, a lot of people have lost some trust in the stock market and even the predictability of it because the government could randomly decide to pump out more money or changing in rates or other things going on could drastically affect the um, So a lot of our families are spending a lot of their mental energy on direct investments into real estate and operating businesses. So that's just what they talk to us about. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So I'd like to dig a bit into the short-term rental aspect of that discussion because I mean, it's an interesting topic that's grown a lot over the last few years, and there's been a lot more adoption, and there have been more passive options coming up for the investors in general to participate. But there's a big concern about saturation in the short-term rental market. How do you and how do your investors think about the supply and demand of short-term rentals? Are we hitting a saturation point where it's a concern, or what do you see? Yeah, so we know this space really well. One of our five divisions is a platform focused on this called InvestorResidences.com. And because of that, we just buy the premium data in the industry and read everything on it, Airbnb's annual reports, et cetera. Airbnb hit 100 million nights booked and experiences booked last year for the first time. And Airbnb has over 7 million or over 7 million units um, and if you look at Marriott, they have 1.2 million. If you look at all the hotel chains combined, they don't touch Airbnb. And Airbnb is seeing a lot of future demand building globally across their whole portfolio. But if you look at the other side of it, multifamily has 25% owned by institutions. Self-storage, I think, is around 15%. I don't know the exact number. I know it's over 10. SFR, which is single-family residential, is a bigger bubble. And short-term rentals is a smaller part of SFR. And SFR, single family residential homes, is only 2.4% owned by institutions. And money pouring into that area. You always read Wall Street Journal headline, the Goldman Sachs bought a $60 million neighborhood or something like that. But as fast as they can pour their money in there, it's going to take three to five, maybe even 10 years to get up to 10% of the industry being owned by institutions. And STRs will lag heat in that. And so I don't think the market's saturated, but the days of just buying a random home downtown or in suburbia and then throwing on Airbnb and you make 15% recurrence are over with the increase in pricing with inflation. Wait, what we found really helps is to get experiential homes. You know, get something that's going to be, can't, won't compete with anyone else in the market because it's such a unique experience, either due to the size of the home or the features of the backyard or all of the above. And so that's where we're really seeing a lot of focus and energy is focusing on getting the big data get in the right locations, but also have one of the top five properties in that that local market. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And I have seen a shift. My time using Airbnbs was mostly for business-related travel, much short, very short-term kind of stays. And you know, I'm not going for the biggest, the most expensive thing, but I, I seem to have seen a, a shift away from those types of properties being available for like business travelers and much more toward the higher end vacation type of rentals. Maybe it's just coincidental, but I, I feel like I've seen a shift in the supply toward that direction. But right. Maybe I, think, I think anyone who's um, stayed at a, a Marriott, which we like Marriott, we stay at them all the time and host our conferences there. If you stay there with a couple of friends and then you meet up in the lobby to eat or you try to cram in someone's room and eat or, you know, try to play board games together. And then you one time go to a property where you have this living space and for close to the same price as three hotel rooms, you get this whole house. It really doesn't <laughs> compare. The value doesn't compare. And people who live at Sedona and live in Hawaii love to complain about 
short-term rentals because they're annoying in several ways if they're all around you, I guess. But the industry wants them. You know, people want them. It's a much better experience for the same dollar spent. Um, but we are going to see more and more competition as institutions pour money into the space. But it's not it's not happening yet. I think in five, seven, ten years is when institutions will come in really heavy, like they are in on single family residential right now. Okay, so you're saying five, seven, ten years that the institutional in, institutions will start coming in. So the way you see it, it sounds you have a bit of a, a head start, a jump start on them. So is the plan to get in the industry while there's room, and then basically sell off the assets to institutions, or continue to participate in the long run? What are your thoughts on the like that longevity of the asset class and investing in it and getting started now? Yeah, sure. We're, we're really long-term minded. I mean, we're looking to build up a portfolio of 600 plus homes long-term and we're building up a portfolio of 10 homes, 10 plus homes right now. And so we're long-term minded. As institutional funding comes in, I think it could just be another tranche of type of investor capital we put to work within our stack of capital. Of course, in any type of investment fund or model, you need to provide your investors returns and figure out how to do that along the way without selling off all of your assets to grow your AUM. So we have a model to do that, but we're not seeing it as get in now and then we're going to be out in seven years. We're looking at it as we're, we're intending to be here for a very long time. Okay, great. Makes a lot of sense. So you briefly touched on or mentioned inflation a bit earlier, and that's a kind of a hot topic these days for obvious reasons, but they want to ask what high net worth and family office investors think about inflation and how they're planning for the future. It seems like it's slowing down. Who knows what's going to happen? The government kind of shut off the money printer, but you know, the, the train's still moving. We still have inflation. So what have the thoughts been regarding inflation and moving forward? I, mean, I think in the last two weeks, there's been more positive data coming out on, you know, the, the cost of uh, shipping going down drastically, the price of oil coming down, the, um, you know, real estate deals, especially the last three months have been repriced all the time. At our investment conferences, we'll hear many multifamily deals that got negotiated and maybe it's a 60 to 90 day closing. And then, 20 days before closing, the buyer will go to the seller and say, oh, well, we found another asset that we can buy with the exact same NOI and we're getting, we're getting it at $2 million less than your property. So you can reduce your price by a million dollars or you can just keep our $300,000 divertis money and we'll go to this other deal that makes more evidence. <laughs> and if they have to relist their property, the rates might go up again during that period the next person contracts and that might happen to them again and again. And so lots of people are just taking that discounted price and closing so they don't break the deal, but we, we've seen that. And so I think that you know, real estate prices are getting smarter and the people who are gonna do best, the ones that can add value to properties and they know how to drive forward you know, that value. For example, whether it's multifamily storage or short-term rentals like we do, if you lock up a property that has a few acres on it and there's room for additional dwelling units on it, or you can buy the acreage next door and expand and add three more units on the property or 30 more units on the property, then that's a way of adding value and driving value. And you're going to increase your NOI greatly on a deal like that versus just buying an asset that has no no upside like that. And so I think that families real, realize that real estate can be something that defends against inflation. And the savvy families know that a good team can make money in a market that's going up and they can make money in a market that's going down. If you don't have that confidence in somebody's strategy, then maybe they're just chasing momentum in the market or something, you know? Mm, okay. So we ha- have you seen these investors moving away from any particular real estate asset classes? I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier. Sounds like there's a little less of a taste for multifamily these days, but there's still some interest. But are there any that have just completely you know, fallen out of, of favor? Maybe 
new development or anything along those lines? I mean, I see people since COVID started, there's there's far less requests to get access to office buildings or office parks. Mm. There is more demand for, I found a couple of Eagle Scouts that had experienced flipping a couple of hundred homes, for example, and they're putting together strategies around, because they've done this three or four times, they're converting ugly motels that nobody wants into studio multifamily apartments, right? So, you know, doing something like that is so unique, it stands out. So it's multifamily, but it's different, right? And so I've seen some rejection from less savvy investors of everything retail. Like, oh, I don't want to invest in retail at all. But I work with a billionaire and a $4 billion REIT that are buying retail assets because of the great cap rates and they just get really strong anchored tenants. So you have to be careful as what like everyone's saying at a conference or what seems like the obvious thing to do because one group that invests only in office buildings, they've grown during COVID from 1.8 billion in assets to 2.9 billion in assets. And they're picking up blue chip tenant clients and they're getting some of the best office properties in the best cities with really long-term weighted average lease terms and they seem to be doing excellent, right? And so you have to be careful, I think, with blanket opinions like, oh, this whole area is garbage. It's dead now. You know, the top performers in every area usually can navigate the storm and do sometimes even better when there's kind of a bad taste in investors' mouths because then you you get things at a better cap rate going in and you can get your investor to great return if you know how to drive that forward even further, you know? Yeah, no, okay. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I can see reasonably why office has fallen out of favor throughout the pandemic, but that also has led to just general less investor demand and more opportunity for the investors who are really willing to to gut it out and, and make a deal happen. So speaking of making deals happen with family offices, when you're working with a, a bigger money investor and providing them an investment opportunity, they bring a lot to the table when it comes to uh, the capital and the finances and all of that. And I would imagine that they want the investment to be structured in a way that prefers them, puts them in a great position. How do they kind of look at deals like a, a short-term rental investment or maybe a multifamily or something working with like a sponsor? What do they like to see from the investment structure? Right. Yeah. Great question. So right before this, I hung up with a $250 million net worth family that we've closed six deals with. We were talking about structure with a sponsor. And then we work with a lot of investors where it's 5 million to 15 million as well. I think the more sophisticated the investor, then the more worried they are about how the deal is structured. And the smaller the investor, the more they're trying to just vet the team, see who else they know that has invested in it, and they don't custom negotiate the terms. So I think that's important to know. Many times in deals I can ask just a simple question of, you know, is there collateral we can put in place so that we can just be assured that my investor doesn't lose all their money if this deal doesn't go well. And many times we'll get the answer yes. And if we didn't ask that question, then there wouldn't be any collateral in place for the investor. So anyone that's listening here is a private investor. I mean, that's one thing I would make sure that you always do is just ask, you know, is there some sort of collateral in place? How is that documented in a, you know, a secured promissory note or some sort of deed in lieu of trust or some sort of document that, that protects you a bit. Most of the investors I work with, they're looking to get, some of them have high demands that they made their money in real estate. They're looking for a 17, 17% IRR on non-construction and maybe 22% or better on construction projects for their IRR demands. But a lot of investors are looking for that 12 to 15 plus percent return and not taking huge risks. And they are trying to stay away from things that maybe have big construction financing risks or 
super highly leveraged and there's it's 90% leveraged or 85% leveraged, you know, they're usually going into banks that have 60 to 70% leverage. So those are some of the the things we've probably been asking for and looking for. Okay. Have you seen those target return ranges, what they're looking for shift over time? And my in my experience in, in multifamily in particular, the years I've been in the business, it's just the average market return has gone down over time. That's not that surprising. But in, from your end, have those bigger investors kind of adjusted with the times or they have they kind of always been in that 12 to 15 percent range but in general in that range i think where the investors from makes a huge difference in what industry they made their money in right like so if you talk to someone who is from hong kong and they make a lot of money off of their real estate appreciation traditionally they're going to not be as satisfied with some types of returns uh, if you're from the middle east or from brazil and maybe get a lot of interest on your money then it's not very exciting to get a high income investment and all you get is that income, they're going to say, well, I can get more than that and almost a riskless investment at the bank or just, you know, it's not riskless, obviously, or wouldn't be that high of an interest, but they can get that in many places where they live. So I think where someone's from, I found has been changing what their demands are more than a change over time. It just depends on what types of investors you're, you're talking to. And then one thing to keep in mind for people listening is just that I always encourage families that made their money in manufacturing to invest in manufacturing and then also two or three real estate food groups and get really good at that. Or if you raise your money in healthcare or medical practices to invest in that plus plus real estate. And I think a lot of private investors just diversify way too much when they become liquid or they start making a lot of money. They get money to their wealth advisor and they invest in a whole bunch of angel investment startups that lose their money and go sideways and are not good for their portfolio. And on the real estate side as well, they may pick three or four different eight groups and not invest all over the place. They can get smarter, smarter over time, you know, and, and that changes the expectations as you get smarter on a niche. You kind of know what's standard. Okay. That that does make sense. Something that honestly, honestly just occurred to me to ask you, but I've never heard you speak on this topic before, but this maybe seem a little out of left field. But when you're in this real estate space, you hear a lot of people talking about how the rich all use this thing they call infinite banking. And frankly, I'm kind of tired of hearing that, especially not supported by data. I've never heard a rich person tell me infinite banking made me rich, but hey, you know a lot of billionaires and hundred millionaires. Is that a popular tool in their tool belt? Or is that just something that guys who sell infinite banking, you know, life insurance policies just kind of say without the evidence? Yeah. I mean, uh, most Wealthy families do not use it. Probably many, if they understood it, could use it and it could be beneficial to them in many cases. So I think it's a highly profitable thing to sell and it is a valuable thing for many investors to use. When I talk to many of my investors, like the ones I just got off the phone with, you know, they have a thousand employees and they're worth $250 million putting out capital into deals, but they are trying to keep up with the flow of everything and learning how very specific types of life insurance work or what they should use when they have so many assets to their name. The last thing they think they need is a life insurance policy in case they die. I think that's a lot of the reasons why a lot of them don't have it. They're past the need of like, oh, I need insurance in case they passed away. What if something happens? You know? And so I see that the uh, desire for it drop off when people are worth 20, 30, 50 or $100 million. But those who are experts in the space and are listening to this know that there'd be massive gains in tax protection potentially from someone who's savvy and can navigate that at those higher levels. I just see the conversation coming up more with people that are worth three to five to 15 or 20 million 
And then they can set aside a significant amount for the next generation and do it in a tax efficient way. And it's more worth their time to look into it because of the multiple benefits. It's not just tax benefits. It's also, oh, if I die, then my family is more than taken care of in this really big way. And uh, that's already taken care of when you're worth, you know, $100 million. So there's like one one less piece of motivation there. So hope that, that helps answer the question. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, it makes sense that somebody who's 50, 100 million, 100 million, 250 million plus, they're kind of self-insured from a life insurance standpoint. But when you're from three to 15 million, that's uh, you may or may not be. And you were thinking about the future and, and can have a tool to uh, to do that. So interesting. OK, yeah, it was good to glad I asked that. I've, I've been very curious about that. And because uh, you hear that kind of put out there all the time by the guys who sell those policies who make sure. a lot of money doing it. And wanted to wanted to check on that. Love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Richard, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show, but you've been on the show before and you've answered those questions. I got three new ones for you for our returning guests. Are you ready? Ready. Great. First one, what is your favorite book, whether for business or personal enjoyment? It's called What It Takes by uh, Stephen Schwarzman. He's the founder of Blackstone. Hmm. That's a new one. I haven't actually had that one recommended. What What makes it relevant to you? Um, I just love his approach to building a, a platform business that has multiple divisions to it and then bringing in someone like Richard Branson does, who's really going to run a division and they're very incentivized to do an amazing job doing that. And the way he lays it out, they have their special secret sauce and their way of operating at the core. And then they are able to have these different tentacles that grow out to create a powerful platform. And that's how I see us growing Family Office Club. And when we bought billionaires.com last year, and we started interviewing some billionaires and reading books by billionaires. This was the number one book that I've read so far that was written by a, a billionaire. So definitely recommend checking it out. It's on Audible too, which makes it really easy. Cool. I will uh, I will put that one on my list. Second one, what is an indispensable tool, piece of software, piece of technology, or other system in your business that you just could not possibly live without? We're using WhatsApp a lot. And it's a very, you know, lots of people know about the tool already, but trading audio messages with my clients, with investors, with my team members, um, it's so much easier than writing out long messages via Slack or email. And also the audio message you know, capabilities on Slack are a little bit annoying and we don't really like them too much. And so just using WhatsApp to uh, communicate via audio with the team constantly, clients have been super helpful. Cool. Great. Third one, what is a place that you're excited to go to in 2023? We're going to Kathmandu and we're going to go on like a backpacking trip with my wife to like the Everest uh, base camp, go on like a 10 day backpacking trip out there. We like to do uh, outdoor adventure trips fairly often. So that's one of our 2023 trips that we have lined up. Awesome. Very cool. Sounds like a lot of fun. And Rich has been a lot of fun reconnecting with you and learning some lessons and some updates about what family offices are looking for these days. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, 
where can they track you down? Uh, the best place is just to go to familyoffices.com, which is plural, familyoffices.com. Or you can just shoot me an email and the easiest email would just be richard at investorclub.com. Or feel free to send me a text message at 305-333-1155. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And to everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, if you don't mind, I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.